The Lord forgives our sins. He also instructs our minds. And so we can accept His grace in the form of forgiveness, but we can accept His grace in the form of counsel, wisdom, teaching. I'm reading to you the Word of God. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Get ready. I'm bound to offend someone today. I trust it will not be Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said this, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, the one you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of the city, Go every man to his city. Governmental order. God is king and he loves to do things decently and in order. Let's make sure that you understand God is king. He is Lord of creation, Lord of the heavens and the earth. He's lords of governors and rulers, princes and principalities, angels and demons. He's Lord of all men who rule, both large and great. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. His kingdom is forever. 
This world is a theocracy. He sits high and lifted up, and he's king over all the nations. And this king sets up governors under him to govern as his representatives. We see this in the family first, where he established Adam. He created the first man. He instructed Adam in the way to properly worship. Adam's duty was to serve his bride by presenting to her how best to glorify God. This is the duty of every man, as he is to take that precious bride given him by the Lord and look out for her well-being, die to self to serve her. Throughout the scriptures, we see this over and over again, as this is the duty of the Christ-honoring, godly husband. His duty is to sacrifice himself and serve, to maintain order. He exists for her best interests. This is why in Christian circles, for thousands of years, some strange women in the eyes of the world have enjoyed saying, I'm here to vow before God and man that I will honor, submit, maybe even obey my husband. And they do this willingly because they love this idea that God has established a chief servant in the house to care for her, that he needs her as his helper, but she is privileged to have him as her chief servant or governor or servant leader. We see this with parents as parents are responsible to govern their children. They're supposed to train their children to follow after them as they follow after the Lord. This is the duty of parents. As God says, the husband is over the wife. God says, moms and dads, you are over your children. In the church, God has elders. Now, at first he had prophets and he had priests. And he told Israel, you are to follow the leadership of these ordained individuals. But then Jesus Christ and his apostles ordained that in the church, there would be a group of men called elders, and your duty is to honor them as they do what? Die to self, become living sacrifices for you, and govern you in a way that is pleasing to God and to you. It's for all of our best interests that we have these forms of government, because God loves things decently and in order, and he doesn't ever prescribe anything that is less than best or that is harsh. In vocational government, you see masters over servants, you see employers over employees, maybe within schools, you see administrators and teachers who have governmental authority over the students they serve. We see this in government as well. Maybe one of the earliest examples is what happens when God decides, I'm going to love Israel. Israel's in a world of hurt. They have a tyrannical king, a pharaoh over them, and his rule is characterized by harshness and taking away liberty. Israel cries. They groan towards God. He hears their cry, and he says, I'm going to flex my mighty arm. He doesn't take governmental abuse lightly. Slowly, stage by stage, he humiliates and mocks Pharaoh. And then he rescues his people. He takes them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the wilderness, to his holy mountain. And what does he do then? He calls Moses to come up. He has instructions he wants to give his chosen people, his beloved people. It's not harsh. God calls Moses. And what does he do to Moses? He says, Moses, I want to tell you how I want to be worshipped. And he gives these old covenant worship rules. 
He looks at Moses and he says, Moses, I want to tell you how my people can be kept clean from some of the diseases around them. I'm going to actually give some medical prescriptions for you that you need to follow. And it's going to be good for you. He says, I'm going to give you ethical rules, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And you're going to know how to order your lives around what I think is right and what is absolutely wrong. You're going to stay away from. And I'm not going to leave government as being untouched. Political theory is presented by God on Mount Sinai to Moses as he says, Moses, you are not king. I'm king. And we're together going to establish elders at different groups. And those men are going to represent me. They're going to represent you. They're going to love the people. And what are those elders going to do? Those elders are going to encourage righteousness, discourage unrighteousness. They're going to make wise judgments. They're going to be men of prayer, men of the word. And I'm going to use them to bless Israel. What God did when he rescued his people out of Egypt and throughout the Old Testament, you had elders, but then you you started having some judges, some other prophetic individuals, some governors like Nehemiah, and you also had kings and queens. In the New Testament, it becomes clear that the king who sits high and lifted up is the one over all governors, small and great, all kings over all emperors, even over Nero. All of them are his elders. All are to love God with their, by loving their neighbors and promoting decency and punishing deviancy. They are his wise judges. And they are always to keep in mind that the king of kings watches with a jealous eye from on high. So sometimes it works out really, really well. There are some good days under God's representatives. Some of you have really enjoyed your marriage to your husband. Some not so much. Some have parents that have just been a blessing from God and others are abused. And there have been times in governmental history when people have prospered over repenters who keep running and bringing the people with them to God versus those who set themselves up as God in Israel. Great benefit was enjoyed under men and women like Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Othniel, Barak, and Deborah. And this is the case in the story here with Samuel. Samuel, from being a young lad, has been called especially by God. He hears God's voice, and even from a young man, he presents himself as one who hears and says, I'm going to speak it clearly. This is what God has to say. He's making a reputation for himself. People from all over the kingdom are starting to understand this is the leader we need to follow. And Samuel, who is set up by God, makes his capital city in Ramah. But then he goes on a circuit throughout three or four different cities as he's sharing the wealth of wisdom he has from God with the people. These are good days for Israel. Samuel also knows God has term limits on all of us. And that his days are coming to an end. So there's this thing called the school of the prophets, you'll see in other texts, where he seems to be reproducing leaders who will judge after the manner that he does, after the wisdom of God. He even seeks to make judges of his own sons, Joel and Abijah, and sets them up in Beersheba. These are the days of Samuel. 
These are good days. But then the bad days come. Samuel is getting older. His term of service is coming to an end. And all is not well in the government sector. Not all are excited about the future. Trouble seems to be brewing around the bend. What's going on? We see a transition from governmental order to governmental disorder. And it all starts with the corrupt character of politicians. As previously mentioned, Samuel has two sons that are in rule, but here's the issue. They may be his two sons, but they're not following after his ways. They're not following after the ways of the Lord. They think too little of God. They think too little of their neighbors. They think too much of themselves. They're like Hophni and Phinehas that we studied a couple chapters back, where these people lust after wealth. They covet. They're materialistic. They pervert justice, pervert justice. They take bribes. Money seems to find its way to them under the table somehow. They're perverts. And they hold political power. And this is not good. We have now concerned elders who are looking at them going, this is not what we need. This is not what we want. So they travel, it appears, to go see Samuel. And they show up and this is what they say. We all know the character and conduct of your sons. We all know we need better leaders, maybe even a better leader, one guy. We need a hero. We really don't want you to choose our next hero. And frankly, we really don't want God to choose our next hero either and tell you who it should be so you can tell us. We want to choose the man. Because we know the only hope for Israel is in the man that we're going to choose, one that will be our guide, one that will be our leader, one that will fight our battles. We want our king, the one we select, the one we trust. We want to have power in our land just like those other nations all do in their lands. We want a government like everyone else. This is what it comes forth at the town hall. And Samuel is immediately troubled. The text says he's displeased with this. I can't, I just something doesn't seem right. It's not sitting well. But what does Samuel do? It's beautiful what this godly leader does. He takes his initial response, which is pretty spot on, but he doesn't trust himself. He takes his reaction to their proposal, and he goes to the Lord and he says, what do you think about this? All that we had, political leaders, church leaders, and family leaders who would think with their minds but distrust themselves so much that they're always going back to God and his word in prayer. This is what happens. Samuel goes to the Lord, and the Lord speaks back to him. And this is basically the big idea of what the Lord says. Sam, you're right. This is crazy. What's getting ready to happen is we've gone from governmental order to governmental disorder, and we're about to go down the road of governmental disaster. It's bad, but it can get much, much worse. 
he speaks and says, notice how the people are rejecting me. They're really not rejecting you because they know that you speak for me. Ultimately, they're rejecting me, and this is nothing new. God's people from Moses till now have always been about rejecting God. Notice that they're not only rejecting me, they're substituting me. They are placing their trust in idols, in a man. Their hope is not built on Jesus Christ and nothing less. Their hope is built on some messianic hero who's going to show up and save the day. Then he says, I need you to warn them, Sam. If they go down this direction, it's not going to go well. Why would they want a god or a leader or an idol or a king like all the other nations? Don't they understand that all the other nations don't know the true God? All the other nations don't have his word? Why would you want to be like everyone else in the world? What if God did something special and unique with this peculiar people that was absolutely gorgeous? Why would you want to be like them? Sam, you got to warn them. you got to tell them this is what's going to happen. And so Sam shows up and he talks to the people. He says, thus says the Lord in effect, the king, he's going to first of all serve himself. I know we talk a lot about being a public servant, but that's not going to be what the king does. He's not going to serve God and he's not going to serve you. As a matter of fact, he's going to turn you into his serfs as he serves himself. He will reign over you. He will be the man in the room. And the king will secondly take your profit and he'll redistribute your wealth. I'm really not trying to read into the text. You may think I'm a political hack and just have found a cool text. This is here. I didn't plan on preaching through 1 Samuel and hitting it on July 4th weekend. I had no clue Mr. Trump was coming into town yesterday. This just happens to be the timing of where we are. So here we are and he says, what the king is going to do, and you look in the text yourself and tell me if I'm not telling you the truth. He says, the king you desire, he will watch you work. He will applaud and appreciate your good labor. He will notice your profitability. It will make him smile as you go to the bank. Trust me, he'll take notice. Then he'll tax you at best. He'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive orchards. And you may not even believe this. This is ludicrous that he may even take up to 10%. Crazy. Who could ever imagine? Like God wants his 10% because God's the one provided. The king will think, I provided this for you. I want my tithes. As things progress, he may even at worst take your means of making an income. He'll take your fields, he'll take your vineyards, he'll take your orchards, and he'll take your servants. Your workforce will become his workforce as he tells you what to do with them. And then what will he do with your God-supplied profit? He'll redistribute your wealth. Your God-given money will be found in his wallet and in the hands of his special interest groups, because the king knows best how to spend that placed under your care by the almighty God who grants all wealth. This is what he's saying. You really want this, like all the other nations. 
He'll serve himself. He'll take your property, redistribute your wealth. He'll take your liberty. He'll become your master. You will become his slaves. Fourthly, he will take your children. He'll take your daughters and appoint them to be his perfumers, his cooks, and his bakers. But your sons will care for his horses, drive his horses, and run before his parade, lauding his name as he makes a big deal about himself. Ultimately, they'll be appointed to plow his ground, reap his harvest, construct his implements of war, and serve in his army. And when it's all said and done, the king will take your joy. You're going to cry out to God. You're going to hurt. And God is the one who gave you what you said you wanted as you replaced him. And he won't quickly show up necessarily and remove the consequences of your hellish decisions. Samuel delivers God's warning. His counsel is discounted. The people double down. No. There shall be a king over us that we may not be like all the, that we may be like all the other nations. He will judge us, he will lead us, he will fight our battles. Ultimately, the people dismiss the voice of the preacher. They dismissed the voice of the prophet, and in doing so, they dismissed the voice and the counsel of Almighty God, the King of kings, who knows how to govern decently and in order. This is God's legislation to his people. Samuel goes back and tells God of their response. God says, give them what they want. And I think Samuel kind of goes to them and shakes the dust off his feet. I'm not throwing my pearls before swine anymore. I'm done with you. Go back to your city. And the rest is history. We're going to walk through First and Second Samuel. You can keep going on through Kings and Chronicles and the rest of the prophets. This is what happens when governmental order becomes governmental disorder followed by governmental disaster. So now, how can we wrap this up? I have four thoughts for you. I really do think that was thus says of the Lord. I hope this is. I've tried to be chaste here. Very careful. First of all, let's value good counsel. In Psalm 1, you see that God says there's the way of the righteous and there's the way of the wicked. In Proverbs, you understand that Lady Wisdom is calling for us. Jesus says that all Scripture is profitable for lots of reasons. What does God have to say to us? He's describing here unrighteous government in contrast to righteous government. Righteous government is concerned with, you ready? Fill in the blank righteousness. You don't get to say that we're going to take morality out of it and make it a private thing. All laws are based on someone's moral standard. All laws, all of them. Righteous government is concerned with righteousness. Righteous governors understand God's ethical wisdom and prescriptions that encourage righteousness are to be followed and they are to discourage that and even punish those who go against God's Moral standards. Righteous government is concerned with justice. Righteous governors know how they are required to hear an issue well 
and give out wise sentences. They understand this, though, that they are not to show partiality to anybody, any group, any caste, any color, any constituency. Religious, righteous government is concerned with liberty. People have to be free to worship, and they must be free to assemble, and then they must be free to be able to use their mouth in worship to God, both in the church and outside the church. Free speech goes along with righteous government. Righteous government is concerned with the family unit. They receive their definition of marriage and do not rewrite it. They grant parents the ultimate authority in shaping, grooming, educating, and discipling their own children. And righteous government is concerned with protecting work, profitability, and stewardship. Righteous governors understand it's God who makes rich and poor. They understand it's God who would have all men work. They understand that it's God who works within the hearts of his own people to redistribute their own wealth. Sure, there are certain aspects of society where quantities of scale and organization at a higher level can be advantageous. But righteous government understands the importance of allowing worshipers to be stewards of their God-given assets and private property. And righteous government is concerned with the protection of life. For this reason, the government holds the sword to scare, hurt, and kill people because they're defending people. They harm those who wish to do harm, and they care for all their citizens, those in the womb, those with disabilities, those on the other sides of the tracks, those who are sojourners in the land, those who are poor, and those who are ending the end of life's journey. Righteous governors have a sanctity of human life. Righteous governors are those who serve the Lord first by thinking his thoughts after him and by legislating them and executing them and judging them with their neighbors. They serve God and their neighbors. They don't exist to serve themselves. An example of this can be found in Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to skip that. You can read that later today, verses 14 through 20, where God, instead of describing what the unrighteous king looks like, describes what his righteous king will look like, and you will see these characteristics there. Contrast this with wicked government. If you want to know the sort of political practice that is vile, look for that out there that discounts God, discounts God's ethic, promotes wickedness, promotes pride, harms its people while serving itself. Look for politicians who redistribute wealth, prefer certain castes, colors, and groups and constituencies, and deny parents ownership of their children. I write here, oh, how Satan smiles when governors and governments take bribes, pervert justice, silent worshipers, and persecute righteousness. And the prince of darkness dances as governments unjustly take lives, devaluing and devouring those who are created in the image of God. This is the legacy of Pharaoh. It becomes the legacy of Solomon, Rehoboam, Ahab, and Jezebel. Such is the legacy of Assyria, Babylon, and Rome. It's the legacy of fascism, socialism, and communism. 
Is it becoming the legacy of the United States or are we just in this horrific blip where we've all of a sudden gone off the rails into the wrong direction? Friends, let's listen to wise counsel. Let's value it. Notice clearly what is good, biblical, and God-approved. And let us be very, very thankful that this has been, not perfectly, but generally, the legacy of the United States of America. For we have not been like all the other nations. We did have one nation under God printed here, there, and everywhere. Not because we were perfect and sinless. But we were heading in a general direction with a general political philosophy. And we are the beneficiaries of such. And the game is not over. We get to, I would say we're even required to take God's word to the streets and love our neighbors. Because worship matters, morality matters, stewardship matters, justice matters, and parenting matters. Our political thoughts, prayers, and practices matter. Because we're called to love our neighbors and because we're good worshipers, we get to pursue that which God causes God to smile and causes His people to rejoice we do not get to take our head and place it in some heavenly sandbox and be oblivious to what's going out there and say all we do is focus on spiritual things. God makes it very, very clear in the Bible that this is spiritual things for those who understand His ways and love their neighbors. We are called to value God's governmental counsel and apply it in His lives, in our lives. And notice... I didn't talk about any political person or party. I didn't even talk about human platforms. What I've presented to you, I think, from Scripture is His platform, the King of Kings. Now, it's your job to exercise your Christian liberty, pray and think, and pursue that which is wise. Secondly, let's trust no one. Now, the world is out there saying, trust your scientists, trust your educators, trust your leaders. We all have what's best for your interests in mind. I would tell you that our founding fathers would say, we don't trust anyone. Yeah, some people trust horses and chariots. Some people even trust taking the ark of God into battle. And some, sadly, here are going to place way too much trust in your next political Messiah. Not us. Not after this message, I hope. The Israelites will place their hope in a tall, good-looking guy named Saul. They'll hate that decision. The Germans place their trust in a small, not-so-good-looking, fiery guy named Adolf. Didn't go so well. Are we really going to place our trust in men? The scriptures would say you shouldn't. Our founding fathers would say we shouldn't. I did some research here, and it seems like everywhere along the way, our founding fathers would say, don't trust us. How, how did they do that? First of all, they said, we don't trust the majority. You need, not everyone's equally wise. You need some wise representatives. Then they said, we're definitely not trusting one man. We're not going back to King George. 
And in the church, you shouldn't trust King Joe. There's no way you want one depraved man leading. Many depraved men are better than one depraved man. They said, we trust in local leadership more than broad federal leadership because we know there's accountability in local leadership. They said, we trust those things that are written down. We're not leaving anything nebulous. We're writing down our bills of rights and our declarations, and we're going to have it written down so we know exactly what our rights are and what they're not. They, they didn't even trust groups of men. So like I'm asking you to maybe trust your elders. They're saying, you can't trust even groups of men. We're going to take and divide them up, those groups, into three branches. Separation of powers, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. And then we're going to have checks and balances because you can't even trust them to do their job right. There needs to be checks and balances. And then they give us the Second Amendment because we're to, we're to distrust government that much. They give us the Second Amendment not so we can go hunt and fish, but in case our government were to become so tyrannical and harsh that we have the means of defending our families in the name of God. And so you see throughout all of our political theory that we have in the United States, there's this distrust of men because we're all prone to wander. We're all prone to get authority and abuse it. Our forefathers knew this. We know this, don't we? We have seen men of all brands abuse their powers and make us their slaves. We got to recognize this and distrust men. Our trust is not in our next president or governor or legislative branch or taking back a house or taking back the Senate. There are benefits, but in this church, let's never be a people that trust a man. Thirdly, instead, let's trust King Jesus. He's the one who's already on his throne. He's got the full backing of the Holy Spirit and the Heavenly Father. He's not going anywhere. And Jesus Christ, who is Lord of creation, Lord of heaven and earth, King of kings, Lord of lords, He's the leader we need because He's also King of kings, Lord of lords. And what did the title say? Servant of servants. He leads like no one else. You could read in Isaiah 53 how he's despised and rejected of men and he gives himself for his bride. You can read in Philippians how he humbled himself and became obedient, even death, even the death of the cross because he loved his constituents that much. And if Jesus Christ loves us enough to give his body and his blood and help us in our spiritual realm, which is eternal, how much also will he help us in our temporal realm, which is temporary? Our hope for this next year, 2023 and 2024, will be tempted to be put in man and in politics, but not this church. Our hope is going to be in Jesus Christ. And he's going to do with us, our families, this church and this nation, whatever he deems best. No one is ever going to take a seat of authority that he doesn't allow and ordain. And so now the next question is, how are we going to respond to that? Are we really going to go around if we get our man or woman in office and now our, our, our emotions are going to be exhilarated to the heavens? 
You've forgotten point two, you're trusting in man. Are you really gonna go around and whine and fall to pieces if we head further into this travesty of Marxism and, and socialism? We're Christians. Our allegiance is to the King of kings and his kingdom, which is forever. It's doing just fine. It will never do anything that other being be doing just fine. And if our king determines he would like to see American revival, we say, thank you, Lord. And if our king says he wants to see American retardation, we cry, but we do not doubt. For we trust him and his will more than we do our own thinking, our own representatives, our own wallet, our own liberties. We exist for him. And we've got to live like that. He is the one who ordains all leaders. He's the one who decides when he's going to bless through both mediocre and maniacal men. He's our safety, our prosperity, and our justice. Lift high the cross. Trust Jesus. And may this especially be true of us if he allows the United States to go further down the dark road. And if he does, do you know how we respond? With faith, confidence, hope, and the gospel until we die like our martyrs have, our forefathers. Finally, a real practical application. Let us love, lead, and serve like Jesus Christ. There's righteousness and unrighteousness. He's determined that several of us, many of us will lead in different ways. Are we going to look like 1 Samuel 8? Let us be Christ-like husbands. May God help me die to self daily. May God help me to have an unrelenting passion for him that causes me to sell out for Laura. She does not need an authoritarian dictator. She didn't sign up for that. Laura needs me to be a living sacrifice for God and for her. She needs me to look more and more like Jesus. Your spouse needs that from you as well. Let us be Christ-like moms and dads. Oh, how our families will be blessed if parents see themselves as the chief sinners and the chief servants in the house. If grace is more natural to God than dispensing justice, then how much more should be, that be true of us who are recipients of His grace? Our children do not exist to help us look good or even feel good. We exist to beautify them. Let us be Christ-like employers. Some of us have the power of the paycheck. People have to follow our lead in order to receive their daily bread. Are we fair and just? Are we full of grace and mercy? Are we generous? We get to lead differently than the world. Does your company and organization just look like everyone else, all the pagan, godless people who don't know God? Or is there something unique about it? Finally, I could talk to Christ-like educators and administrators I say thank you for giving of yourselves. There are ways in which you can make more money in another field of service. However, be humble. Don't act like your students are lucky to be in your world. Remember your journey. Remember how fortunate you are to labor hard to shape the next generation of minds. They're not your children. They belong to other parents. They belong to God. So do your work and be a leader. Govern your class well in humble, diligent, Christ-honoring manner. And for the elders here, let us be Christ-like. 
as I've said before, a plurality of sinful men is what you got. A plurality of sinful men is better than a monarchy of one depraved individual. Elders, let us be the best repenters in the room. Let us pray that we would learn to love Christ's bride as much as he does. We are called to be his ministers, his elders, his representatives, his servant leaders. Do people in our church know how much Christ cares for them because of how much we care for his flock?